Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I think it's so interesting how there are so many hurricanes that you can say the name to and it immediately like calls to our mind that specific hurricane and the, and the things that happened around it. Like every season, there's so many hurricanes, right? But you can say, you know, there's probably like 15 to 20 hurricanes that you can tell me the name of and I'll be like, oh yeah, I remember where that one hit and I remember some specifics about it. And I think that Hurricane Ida is going to be one of those that stays in memory for a long time. Yeah, at the time that we're recording this, it feels like they're still just trying to figure out what really happened with Hurricane Ida. They're assessing the damage and all the billions of dollars that it will cost to make the repairs from the storm. I know we mentioned it in one of our bonus episodes and talked through some of the headlines and just how impactful this storm was. Not only as it came up through like Louisiana and caused all this destruction, but you get up into New York and there was severe flooding and there were tornadoes in between. It just felt like it lasted for such a long time and had such a strong impact. Yeah, and this is obviously a really relevant time of year to have a discussion around hurricanes. You know, we're pretty early on in the hurricane season, and all indications are that this is going to be 
another potentially record-breaking season, or at least a highly above-average season for the number of hurricanes. And there's an obvious trend towards more and more storms and more and more strong storms every year. And so Kellen and I thought this would be a good opportunity to discuss not only the trends in increasing hurricanes over time and and increasing damage and costs, but also how that specifically relates to collapse. And by the way, as I was doing some research on this, I kept coming across different terminology and I was a little bit confused by it. Maybe I should have known this before, but a hurricane and a typhoon and a cyclone, they're all the same thing. The only difference between like a hurricane and a typhoon is the location where the storm occurs. So you've got hurricanes in the Atlantic Ocean, typhoons in the Western Pacific, cyclones in the Indian Ocean, but we'll probably just be using the term hurricanes. And I hope that's understood that we recognize there is a difference between those, but the idea is it's that sort of a storm. Yeah, I think generally, you know, altogether they're called tropical cyclones. We know them as hurricanes because we're in the U.S. Um, And there will be a few times throughout the episode that I'm going to specifically refer to cyclones or typhoons that happen in other parts of the world. But in general, uh, I think we'll just use the word hurricane. So yeah, when you think about these tropical cyclones, these hurricanes, as it relates to collapse, it's really interesting. I'm looking right now on my phone at a Wikipedia article, and it's titled, List of Disasters by Cost. So this is all natural disasters, not just hurricanes. And not even just natural disasters. Like, the first disaster on the list, the most costly disaster, was Chernobyl. But it's really interesting because you scroll down a few and you hit Hurricane Katrina and then Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Maria. And as you keep scrolling, Hurricane Sandy, Hurricane Irma, Hurricane Ida is showing up there. I know they're still assessing the damage. And you can just keep going. Hurricane Ike, Hurricane Wilma, Hurricane Ivan, Hurricane Andrew, Hurricane Michael. By far, the most prevalent disaster on this list is hurricanes. And I know there's a lot of factors when it comes to assessing just how costly a disaster is because oftentimes there's long-lasting impacts and depending on where it took place, you know, if it's in a developed nation, then the damage that it does is going to be more costly to repair than an underdeveloped nation. But by far, hurricanes are the costliest weather event. And we've talked about how, you know, catabolic collapse, as we're bouncing from disaster to disaster and from crisis to crisis, we can't keep up with the cost of it all. And not only that, but hurricanes have a serious impact on mental and behavioral health. Hurricanes can cause disease outbreaks, and we'll speak to that a little bit. Hurricanes can kill a lot of fish. There's a lot of serious impacts from hurricanes, and if we're seeing an increase in high-intensity hurricanes, it seems especially relevant and really important for us to talk about it in the context of collapse. Yeah, and I don't think that anyone is saying that hurricanes in and of themselves are going to cause the collapse of society. That's not it at all. But hurricanes are a big stressor on a system that can already be weakened by other things, right? Especially in regards to financial costs, but the other costs associated with it as well. You know, for example, COVID by itself is a big problem. Hurricanes by themselves are big problems, but hurricanes plus COVID equal fractures in a system that that are going to have a really hard time being mended. And so as our systems continue to be under greater and greater pressure in the future due to all the things we've talked about on this podcast, you add in $100 billion, $200 billion storms, storms that require an insane amount of resources in order to rescue people, in order to 
repair infrastructure, in order to repair homes, in order to accommodate the migrations of people in and out, etc., etc. There's so much there that when we'll get to that in this episode. But when you consider all of those things together happening over and over again and with an increasing intensity, it's not too hard to see how this is relevant to collapse. I couldn't agree more. And I know there's a lot to unpack here. This is a really important topic and there's a lot that it is important for us to understand. So initially, as we're really diving into this topic, what's kind of the foundational knowledge that you feel like we need to have on hurricanes? Yeah, I think the first is that while monetary cost as a result of the damage is an important part, it's certainly not the only part. And we'll see that as we talk through a couple different examples of very large hurricanes or typhoons or cyclones of the past few decades. And we'll notice the severe differences in costs in different locations. So for example, you know, we're going to focus a lot on U.S. hurricanes here. And one of the reasons is that they are, in financial terms, by far the costliest hurricanes. You know, I looked at a list of what of what the most expensive hurricanes have been and they're all in the US. But those in the US are not typically or at least in the past have not been as deadly. So maybe I'll take a second and just spit out some different facts about hurricanes as a whole and then some specific hurricanes and the damage that they've done. So first of all, the top 10 costliest U.S. hurricanes together have cost $717 billion. So we're approaching a trillion dollars for the total cost of the top 10 costliest hurricanes. Nine out of 10 of those have been since the year 2000, with the only one prior to 2000 was in 1992. And the costs are all adjusted for inflation. Of the five most expensive hurricanes, four of them were in the last 10 years with Katrina being the only one that's been longer ago than 10 years, which is crazy. It doesn't feel like it was that long ago to me. And again, of those top five, three of them were in one year or in 2017, a year that in total cost roughly $300 billion in damages to hurricanes. Um, so that's over 40% of the entire cost of the top 10 list were just in one year, four years ago. So if that doesn't show that they're getting costlier as time goes by. Um, I don't know what, what would, but let's let's look at a couple. So obviously the most notorious is Hurricane Katrina. It killed nearly 2,000 people. It damaged more than a million housing units. The storm surge from Katrina was 20 feet high, which is six meters. And in some areas it was as high as 28 feet. An estimated 80% of New Orleans was underwater and in some of those areas up to 20 feet deep. I'm just on a side note. I drove through New Orleans a few years back and we stopped at a Denny's. And I remember they had a plaque on the wall that showed the flooding and pretty much the entire store was underwater. The good news was that by some estimates, 80 to 90% of New Orleans residents had been evacuated before the storm, which is just a crazy amount of people to have evacuated. Um, but around 100,000 remained trapped in the city. Deaths in Katrina, in Louisiana alone, 1,500 people are believed to have died, and 40% of those were from drowning, 25% from injury and trauma, and 11% were from heart conditions. Something like 1.2 million people from Louisiana were displaced for months and even years after the storm, and around a quarter million became unemployed long-term. Two years after the storm, New Orleans' population had dropped from the 485 roughly thousand people before that down to 250,000 people. So nearly half the population. And by just last year, 2020, the population had finally reached back to 390,000. So the population of New Orleans is still like 20% less than it was pre-Katrina 15 years ago, 16 years ago. And I feel like the thing that people remember most about Katrina was 
the lack of government response. I think that was an eye-opener for a lot of people. I know it was for me, I was 15, to realize sometimes the government just doesn't come. (laughs) People think they can rely on the government to save them. And Katrina was a really great and maybe the first example of this century of realizing if you're in trouble, you're going to have to figure it out yourself. You're on your own. I'd say we're pretty spoiled in the U.S. to have ever had that mentality that we'll always be taken care of and saved if anything big and scary comes our way. But it definitely is an eye-opener to see some of these disasters that take place and to think, if that happens to me, I'm pretty much on my own. It goes back to the importance of building resilient communities like we've talked about and within your own sphere of influence, doing what you can to be prepared for anything like that. But my heart goes out to the people that have been through that level of trauma where nobody's coming to save you and you're in a crisis situation and you just have to figure it out on your own. Yeah, and there are a lot of really cool stories about Katrina and the way that communities came together. I know that you know some people will talk about the complete lawlessness and the chaos that reigned during that time. But I think amidst that, there was also a lot of resilience shown amongst people who protected each other, helped each other, relied on each other to get through it. So like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, you know, different storms have complete different characteristics and sit in your mind differently. And so um, I'm not going to go through a lot of storms here. I I just wanted to touch on Harvey. You know, it was one of those in 2017 that was extremely costly. It's the second costliest hurricane in U.S. history. By the way, Katrina ended up costing around $176 billion. And Harvey was somewhere around like $135 billion. Harvey made landfall three times in six days. It was an incredibly slow-moving storm, which was attributed in large part due to climate change and the effects that it had on weather patterns. At its peak, uh, one-third of Houston was underwater. Houston is the fourth largest city in the U.S. with 6.6 million people. It's huge. Three-fourths of the homes that were damaged were outside of the 100-year floodplain, and those homeowners did not have flood insurance. Harvey flooded 800 wastewater treatment facilities and 13 Superfund sites. We talked about Superfund sites a few episodes ago in the waste episode, and basically that spread that sewage and toxic chemicals into all those flooded areas, which, by the way, the area of that flooding covered southeast Texas the size of the state of New Jersey in water. Some of the craziest stats to me, they said that uh, in one area, 60 and a half inches of rain fell. That's five feet of rain. That was a record for a single storm in the continental United States. And they said it was a one in 1,000 year event. Lucky us, it just happened to to happen this decade, and and I'm sure we'll see more 1,000 year events. And I'll just interject there and say that as we've been going through these conversations and we talk about all these crazy things, you know, hurricanes is just one subtopic within collapse. But I keep running into that over and over again that like, hey, this is once in a century or once in a millennia or it's just totally unprecedented. But those kind of things are happening more and more frequently. Yeah, I don't know at what point they just stop calling them one in a thousand year events because they're not anymore, right? You know, when do they change sort of that benchmark and what that actually looks like? But then the last storm I wanted to talk about was Hurricane Ida, uh, which we just experienced right now at the time of recording this. It's been about nine days since Ida made landfall. And it's so interesting because Ida was a huge deal. But I think for a lot of people, it's already kind of out of the news cycle. It was just another thing that happened in this crazy couple of years that we're having and people are going to move past it. But the expected costs for Ida are actually pretty high. They're still, at this point, again, of recording this, I'm sure this will 
will change by the time that this has been released. But they were were projecting somewhere between 50 and 90 billion dollars in damage. So, you know, possibly somewhere around half of of what Katrina was. And interestingly enough, Ida actually caused more damage to to Louisiana's electricity distribution system to their grid than Katrina did. Apparently, it damaged more than 30,000 utility poles, close to 35,000 spans of wire. That's uh, a wire from one pole to the next. And 5,600 transformers. It knocked power out to about a million people. And as of today, nine days later, um, about half of that power is back. You know, earlier I had mentioned the insane amounts of resources necessary to clean up and do the recovery here. Over 27,000 restoration workers from 41 different states have come to aid their efforts to restore the power. 27,000, that is just an insane amount of labor necessary to get the power turned back on. And that's just power. When you think of cleanup, when you think of having to rebuild those homes and the labor necessary for that, or even if it's not rebuilding homes, if it's simply just re-roofing the houses that had shingles ripped off, the amount of time and resources to make that happen is going to be absolutely insane. And referring again back to what I mentioned earlier, costs are actually going to be much higher to rebuild in Ida than in past storms because of the inflationary pressure caused by the pandemic. You know, we have these supply chain issues going on right now. Building materials are already 30% or so more than they were pre-pandemic. Labor has gone up because it's so hard to come by. You picture all of these thousands of homes now that are going to be in need of repair. All the material that we required for that, all the labor that will be required of that. It's just another huge strain on the system. And then you think about what if there's another storm that does the same thing in the same year? If you've got 27,000 people coming to help fix the electricity in one state. And what happens if people lose electricity in another state? Like There's not just more people you can magically pull out of the air that know how to do what they're doing. And I think one of the most tragic parts to this is that typically over half of people affected by hurricanes don't have any sort of flood insurance at all. And so it's an economic loss that is not regained on the part of the people who are experiencing it. We talked a little bit about this in our last bonus episode, but this is just another way in which the poor get poorer or in which we lose the middle class and the wealthy get wealthier. And on top of that, this is a huge burden on government budgets because a significant part of any insurance that does cover flood damage is from a national insurance called the National Flood Insurance Program, which is in debt. And because of the increasing cost of storms will likely never be self-sustaining. Yeah, and it's mind-boggling to think how any insurance agency can remain solvent when there are that many claims. And, you know, the impact that it has on the insurance agency, whether they're able to stay in business or whether they're just going to increase their costs and premiums and make it so that even less people are able to afford insurance, whatever the outcome, it doesn't seem like a positive one. And then you think of lenders, mortgage companies, how they deal with these kind of damages. And I don't know exactly how they protect themselves in cases like this. I'm sure they've got some form of insurance, but one way or another, that eventually works its way back to the consumer. Yeah, that's right. Insurance companies have what's called reinsurance, which is just their own insurance company. So when big things like this happen, they're able to pay out on it without defaulting or going bankrupt. And I assume that mortgage companies do as well. I don't know. I don't know exactly how that part works. But like you said, it is crazy to think about either way, costs are going to increase for the end user, which just goes to further make life harder for the person who's, you know, working two or three jobs to get by as their premiums are increasing. 
it incentivizes people not to get that insurance. And then when the hurricane does hit, they are doubly screwed because now they're out of the house and out the money. I think to the future and I think what are mortgage companies going to do? Are they going to keep risking the money that they're loaning out on homes that may not be there in 30 years and on people who may not renew their insurance at some point during that time? And that makes me question the viability of real estate markets in those areas. I mean, obviously, the real estate markets should be questioned anyway as we as we consider what's going to happen the rest of the century. But specifically, I wonder at what point do real estate and mortgage companies stop giving out those mortgages in those areas. You think about 30 years from now, someone getting a loan right now will finish paying off that mortgage in 2050. And you know, if I was a, a smart mortgage lender, I would think that I would be I would be taking that into serious consideration. But like I had mentioned, um, cost is not always indicative of the strength of a storm necessarily because for example, typhoons in general are stronger than hurricanes. Because of the conditions of the Western Pacific, they have the chance to build greater strength. And in general, typhoons do not cause as much economic damage when you compare them to hurricanes in the U.S. You know, in general, some of the most expensive typhoons or cyclones number in the in the single digits of billions, you know, 9 billion or, or low double digits, 10 or 11 billion. And when you compare that to 180 billion for Katrina, it is quite a bit less. However, one area in which these typhoons and cyclones on the other side of the world are typically much worse has been in the number of deaths. So, for example, in the U.S., the deadliest ever hurricane was in Galveston, Texas in the year 1900, and it killed between eight and 12,000 people, which is a ton of people when you think about hurricanes. But the deadliest tropical cyclones in world history have all happened in Southeast Asia, the worst of which was in Bangladesh. It was called the Great Bola Cyclone. In 1970, it killed between 300 and 500,000 people. Half a million people dead from a hurricane. So the numbers are just not even close to comparable. And there are multiple other storms on this list that killed in the hundreds of thousands of people. And the majority of them in India, Bangladesh, Vietnam, China, and Myanmar um, actually round out the top 10. And some of those as recent as 2008... Um, 1991. So these aren't crazy, crazy in the past. Um, But over time, those deaths have lowered dramatically because of the ability of forecasting, warning, and evacuation abilities. You know, there was a huge cyclone uh, just last year. It's called Cyclone Amphan in Bangladesh. And there were relatively very, very few deaths, you know, more along the, the hundreds of deaths instead of the hundreds of thousands. But even that great Bola cyclone that I talked about that killed 300 to 500,000 people, after adjusting for inflation, the cost of that, the economic damage was only $600 million. So you compare, you know, less than a billion dollars to the $176 billion, but how many people killed? It's just crazy how much of a difference there is there. And that goes to show, once again, that the more complicated you make your society, the more complex your society is, the more focus you put on expensive technologies and things, and the harder it is to upkeep those things, because the bigger chance there is for those things to to be destroyed. The last thing I'll mention here that's interesting to me is that in order of frequency in which a country is hit by a tropical cyclone, the U.S. is actually just number five. So Mexico, Japan, the Philippines, and China round out the top five with China being number one most frequently hit. Well, as you mentioned, all those 
devastating storms, and as we talk about those in the context of collapse, it begs the question, what can we expect in the future? And kind of at the root of that question, something people have been asking for a long time, is whether climate change is affecting hurricanes. And there are a lot of ways you could look at that, because there are a lot of factors involved in what makes a hurricane worse or more destructive. Like you talked about, do you measure it based on the cost? Do you measure it based on how deadly it was? How many lives were lost? And if you ever delve into the science of anything, you know, for good reason, scientists are more willing to speak to correlations than they are to causation. But when you look at some of those factors with hurricanes, we do have some answers. So first question, is climate change making hurricanes or cyclones more frequent? And the answer is actually no. It's kind of interesting because just in terms of the number of hurricanes, it stays pretty consistent. And why that might be confusing is because where we are seeing an increased frequency is the strength of hurricanes. So you get all these category one or category two hurricanes, nobody ever even pays attention to them, but we're seeing more and more of those fours and fives. And they count tropical storms as well that don't even convert into hurricanes. Um, so I'm sure it makes a difference, you know, as it moves from a, a tropical storm to a hurricane, like a category one or a category two. And then again, as it becomes a major hurricane up towards the category four and five. Yeah, at least in the Atlantic system, it first becomes a tropical depression. And as it gets stronger, it graduates to a tropical storm. And then once the winds rise over 74 miles per hour, it's termed a hurricane. And I know you weren't um, meaning to like downplay the severity of category ones or twos, you know, Hurricane Sandy, for example, which is one of the most expensive in history, which is a category one. So it depends on where those land. But in general, yeah, if if someone sees a category one, they're going to be like, oh, it's not going to really do anything. Yeah. Thank you for calling that out. I'm not saying that category one or two, that those aren't things to be worried about. But generally speaking, we see a lot more damage from these more violent storms. So frequency, no, it's not increasing, but strength is increasing. There's another term called rapid intensification, and it's defined as an increase of wind speed of at least 35 miles per hour in just 24 hours. And so there's the question, is that increasing? The answer is yes. They found that rapid intensification has increased by 4.4 miles per hour per decade over the last four decades. But again, they're reticent to tie that directly back to human-caused climate change. I'm not. Um... Just kidding. I'm not a scientist. But, um, you know, Ida actually went through rapid intensification. And I think that's the primary reason that it would have been able to make it all the way to northeastern United States, where it wreaked havoc on New York and New Jersey and everywhere in between along the way. You know, we saw videos of subway stations being filled with water, tornadoes in New Jersey, you know, water carrying cars down the street in the Bronx, a significant amount of the economic damage that came from this hurricane. And and actually, the majority of the loss of life was not from Louisiana, but was from further north as it made its way across the country. It feels like in the past, it would have been much more likely to have a hurricane make landfall and then kind of fizzle out. Um, Ida did not really fizzle. And it seems like that's just going to be more and more common going into the future. Yeah, and you've called out something really important there, which is that the winds, we talk about the wind speeds, and those can be so dangerous, obviously, but often what causes even more damage and can cause more deaths is just all of the water. So one question is, is there more rain? 
is the amount of rain from hurricanes increasing? And the answer there is yes, significantly more. And that's because the warmer the air is, the more moisture it can hold and the more rain it produces. So this is interesting. Generally, for every degree Celsius increase in air temperature, the atmosphere can hold 7% more moisture. And in addition to that, there are other factors in a storm, like a tropical cyclone, that makes the rainfall even heavier. So again, there's not necessarily more hurricanes, but they are stronger. There's more rapid intensification. There's more rain. And then another thing that you kind of alluded to is this question of, is climate change affecting the forward speed of hurricanes? And the answer is yes. There's a recent study showed a 10% global reduction in forward speed of tropical cyclones since 1949. And by forward speed, you're referring to how fast that cyclone moves through a given area, right? Basically, it's miles per hour at which it's moving. Yeah, these storms just kind of stay in the same place. They move slower. And that's really concerning because of the impact on flooding. Just for perspective on that, um, Hurricane Harvey moved at about 12 miles per hour over the entire southeast coast of Texas. And I think that I heard at one point um, Hurricane Ida was moving at something like 9 miles per hour, which is extremely slow for, for a hurricane to be moving, especially as it's just sucking more and more moisture off of the ocean and then dumping that right back on land as it spins. Thunderstorms, though, for example, move at a much faster rate, so they can dump a large amount of water, so they move over quickly. And what's interesting, I mentioned that 10% decrease in forward speed of hurricanes, but that's just globally, and that's including over water. But when we talk about over land, that slowdown is heightened even more. 21% in the western North Pacific and 16% in the North Atlantic. So going back to frequency, there's different opinions on whether hurricanes will become more frequent in the future. Some say there could be an increase in what they call the saturation deficit, which means the atmosphere essentially has a tougher time reaching its moisture capacity. And there's talk of increased wind shear, which refers to winds that kind of cause a barrier to storms. And if that were the case, that could reduce frequency. But on the other hand, there are some models that say there could be an increase of anywhere from 9 to 23% during the century. And so it just highlights that we really don't know. They're trying to make models and predict and scientists are on both sides of it of whether we'll have more hurricanes. But again, the question of more doesn't really matter because the majority of those are small hurricanes that might not ever even hit land. But what we do know is that we're going to get more big ones. Or in other words, the intensity is going to increase. And think of this, a hurricane with 150 mile per hour wind speed has 256 times the damage potential of a hurricane with 75 mile per hour winds. So you double the winds and you get 256 times as much damage. That's crazy to think about because a category one is 74 miles per hour and a category five is, is 157, I believe. So the difference between a category one storm and a category five storm, at least when it comes to wind speeds, was 256 times the amount of damage. That's crazy. And I should note that Ida was a category four with max winds at 150 miles per hour. So once you're getting into that range of like category three, four, five, you're talking about something that has the, the, the ability to do such a significant amount of damage wind-wise, but also like you mentioned, the storm surge is, is a huge part of that. 
And there are some simulations that calculate a 28% increase in Category 4 and 5 storms globally, with, by the way, a 335% increase in the Northeast Pacific and 42% in the North Atlantic. So with that, they're talking about these once-in-a-hundred-year events happening on average every 5.5 years. And it's gotten to the point that they're even saying, you know, tropical cyclones will reach wind speeds that are so high above the Category 5 threshold that they're saying we should develop a Category 6. What a milestone, right? It'd be fascinating to see what city gets the privilege of experiencing the first Category 6 hurricane. Yeah, I can only imagine the devastation. So with all of that in mind, going back to the cost and how it relates to catabolic collapse, here's a statement that was made from a paper published in 2017. We'll try to make sure we include it as a link in the episode description. But the author of this paper says, In combination, climate change and coastal development will cause hurricane damage to increase faster than the U.S. economy is expected to grow. In addition, we find that the number of people facing substantial expected damage will, on average, increase more than eightfold over the next 60 years. So, Corey, how does that make you feel? Glad that I don't live on the uh, southern coast or the eastern coast of the United States. Yeah, it is honestly a very scary situation. And here we've talked about just the damage and, you know, that immediate impact, the cost. But again, hurricanes can cause disease outbreaks. And it's because you've got, you know, a flooding disaster. Sanitation is already compromised. You've got people displaced and usually they're crowded together. There's a lot of standing water. And so disease flourishes. And that's really any disease that is transmitted through contaminated water, but also mosquito-borne viruses. And at the same time, people lose access to their prescriptions. And then all of the stress with that kind of an event, you get an increase in depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder. And usually that kind of damage causes long-term stressors. And so a lot of negative impacts on the health of a community that is hit by a hurricane. I kind of mentioned this before, but hurricanes oftentimes lead to an increase in fish kills or fish deaths. And some of that is because there's changes in the salinity of the water. You get floods that come in and then the water recedes and a lot of fish are stranded. There's some other things about the way the water is churned up. and, And there are some other factors at play that we don't need to go into that basically cause there to be less oxygen in the water and fish die from that during the course of a hurricane. But you think about all the damage to roadways and the electrical grid, other ways that it damages our infrastructure, kind of like what you've talked about with some of those examples of hurricanes that we've seen in recent years. But I've mentioned before how there's somebody I know who owns an injection molding business for plastics and how they've been having a really hard time the last couple of years just getting the resin, you know, the the base material, the plastic they need to create these products. And this individual that I talked to about this that owns this company attributes it to all of the hurricanes that keep hitting the Gulf of Mexico. And I said, Corey, how do you feel about this? And he said, well, I'm glad I don't live in one of those coastal areas. I agree with you there, but it definitely affects all of us with the economy in general, but with supply chains and the kind of things that we have access to. Yeah, that's very well said. Um, there's so much more that comes with hurricane damage than just people out of homes, sort of the typical things that you think about. It's wide reaching. And the more 
frequently that we are hit by large storms, the more dramatic and prolonged those effects are going to be. And when you think about, you know, storms like Ida or Harvey or Sandy or Maria, you know, that are these like $100 billion storms. And if those are going to increase and every year, there's these $100 billion storms. I just, I just can't imagine how we could, how we could keep up with that. And Again, combining all the other factors that we're running into right now with COVID and inflation, supply chain issues, and you exacerbate that with with these storms, it's just going to be a really interesting time in the future, sort of watching that all unfold. I think people think of sea level rise, and for a lot of people, that's kind of the main concern about climate change. And I think before, you know, Miami is ever even just permanently an inch underwater, it's going to be feet underwater temporarily multiple times from multiple hurricanes, right? How many times will a city have to rebuild itself before the people abandon it almost completely? And at that point, you know, the actual sea level rise won't matter. Critics of climate change will say, you know, the the sea itself is rising so slowly and we've got till 2100 before anything like that happens. But every inch that the the sea level rises, that's one more inch worse that the storm surge is going to be. And even worse because the storm itself is going to be more intense as well because of climate change. So anyway, that's just a long way of saying that our coastal areas are in danger. And I think that that's going to have huge reciprocations throughout the entirety of the country. And the case is the same in in all parts of the world that are affected frequently by tropical cyclones. You know, throughout the world, natural disasters are taking place. And we focus a lot on the U.S. And I think about how the West is kind of on fire and burning. The East is underwater much of the time with floods with hurricanes there's danger of earthquakes in certain areas danger of severe drought in others i'm hoping at some point we'll try to pinpoint what is the best place to live if you want to make it through collapse yeah that's a question that comes up a lot on the subreddit and it used to be the northwest it used to be Portland, Washington. People just thought that was that was like the answer all the time. And after this summer, suddenly everyone's like, okay, there's there is no safe place, right? People talk a lot about like the Great Lakes region, and I th- I think I agree with that. It's pretty far north. It's shielded from a lot of these things that we talk about. But you know, each place is going to run into its own unique difficulties, and I don't think anyone knows for sure what the perfectly correct answer is to that question. And again, that goes back to what we have talked about several times, and that is building a community where you are, no matter where you are. I mean, if you're in a particularly bad place for water, drought, coastal, whatever it is, you know, I would say make an effort to get somewhere reasonable. But knowing that nowhere is perfect, you know, if you're stuck where you are, make that place your home and make those people your people. I think that will fare much better for most people than, um, you know, a plan to bug out to some better location where they're a stranger later on. Well, I found the research for this episode really interesting. And thank you, Kellen, for for doing your part as well. We brought up our bonus episode a few times throughout this. If you're not currently a member of our Patreon, feel free to check it out. There's a link to it in the description of this episode. We're really appreciative of our supporters. And also, if you have not done so yet, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.